It's got a soul, this hero farm. It falls asleep inside my arms. We walk the fields under the stars. For love is here in Goldshaw Farms. Welcome to Goldshaw Farm. I'm your host, Morgan Gold. On each episode of our podcast, we bring you stories of people who are homesteading, farming, and chasing their dreams. <laughs> and uh, right now, I'm, I'm sitting on my front porch uh, recording this for you guys. The barn cats are running around. You can probably hear them stalking. There's a nice, cool breeze. But this is like one of the earliest nights that actually feels like summer. It's it's uh, kind of a great feeling. Just you know, I've had a long day of working hard here on our farm, and I'm exhausted. But it's like that good kind of exhausted that I'm feeling. You know, it it's on nights like this where I'm just sort of spent from the day's work, and I'm just trying to relax and not do too much. That I really start to think about the big picture stuff in life. You know. The, the, like, what are we doing? Why am I doing what I'm doing? Why did I make the changes in my life that I ultimately made? Like, you know, kind of all of those things sort of pop up for me when I'm just out here sitting and relaxing on nights like this. But I know that even though I've made some pretty big life changes, I'm, I'm not the only one out there who's done that. Um, you know, there's lots of people all across the world who are making major shifts and making major changes in their life because they want to live a different type of lifestyle. They want a closer connection with their food. They want to focus in on their resiliency and, and how they could deal with coming crises. And and so thinking about that and thinking about the fact that I'm not alone there is nice. You know, one such person that I know who falls into that category is is my friend Jason Kaplan. Jason lives up in Canada, like in the middle of nowhere, like hours from most places that you might know of in Canada, or at least most places that I might know of in Canada because I'm, you know, a very American-centric view of the world. But Jason's out there, and, and he is living by himself. Well, he and his dog and a whole bunch of uh, poultry and, and, and such, they're, they're out there living on a homestead in the middle of the woods, Jason um, is kind of an interesting guy. You know, he, he got his start actually as a video game developer of all things. And after really thinking about what he was doing with his life and thinking about the state of the world and where he thought things were going, he actually decided to make some, some pretty major changes. So on today's episode of the podcast, I am going to be running a conversation I recently had with Jason where we talked a bit about everything that's going on in his world, why he's doing what he's doing, why a guy in his early 30s who, you know, was a successful video game developer would try to, you know, consolidate all of his financial assets and and move to a homestead in the middle of nowhere. Um, and, And it was a really great conversation. So without me blabbing on anymore, here is Jason Kaplan. I can't remember thinking about wanting to be one thing when I was 10. And it certainly wasn't a homesteader, but 
I know at some point in high school, when I realized I had a knack for computer programming and all I really wanted to do with my spare time was play video games, I decided to go into computer programming and uh, video game development in particular. When I entered the industry, one, there wasn't really a lot of uh, big game development in Toronto. There wasn't much of a AAA scene. And mobile games had become sort of the the way people were getting into the industry and making money. So most of my career was spent building stuff for iPhone and Android. And usually they would be kids games because that's where there were contracts and that's where there were jobs available. So I made a bunch of stuff that somebody's children probably played to instead of a babysitter, right? But I never really got to make Assassin's Creed or Grand Theft Auto or anything like that. Now, since then, Ubisoft Ubisoft did open a studio in Toronto, and uh, I did interview there, and I thought about going into the AAA scene, but it became apparent by knowing other people who worked in the industry, by getting in through the, um, getting in the door myself, that there's a lot of unpaid overtime, there's a lot of burnout, there's a lot of uh, not great treatment of the, not at Ubisoft in particular, but in big studios, it's not the greatest quality of life or the balance of work-life balance and stuff like that. So instead of pursuing sort of the dream of building those games that we both probably loved playing, I just kept getting a, a solid paycheck and going home at five making <clears throat> stuff I wasn't passionate about and uh, that's tough too because after a few years of that I just couldn't didn't want to be in front of a computer anymore so so as you're reaching that point is is that like how you get the idea oh I want to go move to the middle of Ontario nowhere Ontario and and set up my own homestead or, or was like what was the thought progression there to go from being a guy living in Toronto working as a video game developer to what you're doing today well I realized pretty early on that I didn't love the 9 to 5 Monday to Friday grind in an office um, and having no creative control over what I was doing and answering to bosses and their bosses and their bosses. And so I got into the financial independence movement uh, or the FIRE movement pretty early on, probably in 2012 or 2013, and started aggressively saving my money and investing it in the stock market. And actually, when I finally got to the point where I wanted to stop working. I was actually looking at the van life movement and van dwelling. And if you've watched my channel, you've seen my giant cargo van that I still drive. And I lived in that the summer after I left Toronto. And I intended on doing that for a while. And I was going to come to homesteading after that anyway. But that got fast-tracked because my puppy threw up every time we drove anywhere in the van. So I, uh, I jumped right into the farm thing. But that came from sort of something separate. Before you go off that, I want to come back to something. So so what is the FIRE movement for somebody who's listening and not familiar with that? So FIRE stands for Financial Independence and Retire Early, which basically there's been a lot of smarter people than me who've written books and, and blogs about it. But the goal is to save up roughly 25 times what your living expenses in a year would be so that you can earn a 4% interest off of that savings vessel to pay your yearly salary to yourself. And at that point, you don't, you can keep working or you can retire and not need to keep working anymore. Part of it 
And, and a big part of it for me was about reducing costs. So being able to move out here where I can grow my own food and my taxes are lower and I don't have a mortgage, that all helps bring down the amount of money I need to bring in in a year. Therefore, my fire point is significantly lower than it would have been in Toronto, which would have been in the multi-millions probably before I'd be able to keep living in Toronto without a job. So I uh, invested pretty aggressively and it paid off. I, I got lucky a few times or I'm really smart, but I think I got lucky and I got some good returns, but it wasn't enough to do this necessarily. It was maybe enough to live in a van by a river and that's what I was going to do in order to escape. But I also had property in Toronto and when I sold it at like the peak of the Toronto's market in 2017, uh, which was also a stroke of fortune. I was able to buy this homestead with the profits from that and reinvest the rest of the profits to get my, hopefully to get my income higher, but the markets have been bad to me this winter, so I'm I'm banking on the farmer's market this summer to, to bring that back up. So, so now, if you don't mind me asking, how old are you? I'm 33, and I stopped working and left Toronto when I was 31. Now, when you tell people that, does that like just sort of freak them out, blow their minds? Like, what's the reaction you usually get from that? You know, people have been actually pretty supportive about everything. I expected there to be more, I guess, jealousy and bitterness and stuff like that. And I've experienced almost none of that. Um, I, certainly, I lost certain some friends in Toronto when I, when I left Toronto. And I wonder how much of that might be because they... Uh, not that they couldn't support what I was doing, but because they were upset about my ability to do it. But, you know, on the internet especially, and with people out here in uh, my new hometown, it's either a lot of older people who congratulate me and and are supportive of me doing it while I'm young and just getting out there and living the dream, or it's other young people who are pursuing something similar or they're doing it in a, a similar vain but a different avenue and no one's really been rude about it which is great i was definitely expecting more hostility yeah i i, I know what you mean i mean for, for me where you know i was like 30 i guess 38 at the time um where i you know left washington dc to move up here to vermont full time and and kind of drop out of the career track that i was on you know I thought people would have sort of a more negative reaction to it too. And they all were like, wow, that's, that's kind of interesting that you're doing. Like it was very supportive and it was very, people were very just curious about how, how you make it all work. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of curiosity. Um, and I try and, I try and express every time that there was a lot of privilege. There was a lot of luck and I'm certainly not a genius who, who solved the, <laughs> solve the puzzle or anything like that um so i try and stay humble about it and maybe that helps prevent people from getting mad at me although i do have a lot of advice and opinions about it and how how other people can get there but like i said there's a lot of smarter people who've written those books and do a better job of explaining that but i mean what advice would you have for somebody who is say working away at a nine to five right now maybe dreaming of, of moving out to the middle of nowhere, live on a homestead, grow their own food, live a little bit more simply. Like what would, what would be your suggestion for them to get started there? Well, step before even step one, step zero is to get rid of your debt as much as possible. And of course a mortgage doesn't count in the same way as, as credit card debt or anything like that. You're getting rid of the debt that's costing you 
money without uh, building up your equity, right? Get rid of your debt. And then step one is to increase your savings rate. You know, when I started, about 50 or 60% of my bills or income were going into bills, rent and, and stuff like that. And then I put aside 20% and I spent the rest on living my life, going to movies, buying video games, whatever. Uh, and then the more I wanted to do it, the more aggressively I wanted to do it, the more aggressively I saved. And so by the time I left, I think my savings rate was closer to 40%. I was putting aside probably every other paycheck was going into my savings account. And that requires sacrifices. That requires cutting luxuries out of your life. And... Um, but the more you can sacrifice when you're young, the quicker you can get to a point where you don't need to sacrifice your time and your life to someone else or an employer or a boss or whatever. I can come to it much better from a Canadian perspective, like how particularly to invest or save that money with the tax-free savings account and your RRSP and all that stuff. I know in America it's different with the 401 and the there's a health savings account and there's a... There's another one. I can't remember. Well, well, and actually, as you're saying that, that sort of triggers a question for me. So, you know, one of the things that I know for, for my wife and me that has been like the hardest thing to decide as we're, we're trying to live this simpler life here on our farm has been like, well, how do we figure out health insurance? How do we do that? How's the situation different in Canada? Well, I don't need to worry about that so much because we've got <laughs> universal health care, big rainbow stars, all that stuff. Yeah. It's, I can't even imagine that, like, and I don't want to step on anyone's toes when I say this, but like the healthcare system in the U S is, is so broken. And I couldn't, I don't think I could be doing this with as much confidence if, uh, if I didn't have Canada's healthcare system to rely on as an example, like I still got to pay out of pocket for dentistry and all the other stuff. Um, but yeah, if I, if I break a leg, on the homestead here so long as someone finds me because i'm out here by myself and it's just my dog who isn't so good at getting help uh so long as someone finds me before i starve to death in the field i'll get put into a hospital and get my leg treated and it won't cost me a penny so that's a huge leg up on getting sort of where i am in, in canada versus america but yeah, I don't know. I don't know what to do in the States. I guess you'd pay out of pocket for, for health insurance, right? Yeah. Um, well, if you if you don't have health insurance, yeah. You, like, you know, if it's not employer-based, then you're buying it. Um, and it's not cheap at all. <laughs> yeah. So you're tempted then to take a risk and not buy it, but you that could end up costing you way more. That could be, I mean, I, I, I was reading something, I think that the single biggest driver of bankruptcy in the United States is healthcare related costs, like yeah. far and away. And and it, it's kind of understandable when you, I mean, you look at the costs and you look at sort of what exists and what doesn't, it, I can see how that happens really easily. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about your, your place. Can you, for, for people listening, can you describe where you are, what your homestead's like? Yeah, so I moved about four, four and a half hours uh, northeast of Toronto, closer to Ottawa. I'm about an hour and a half from Ottawa. And that is a much lower cost of living. Well, real estate is much cheaper out here. 
So I'm way out in the boonies and I'm on a hundred or so acres. Most of it's bush, but there's a few pastures and an old barn and an old farmhouse, which I have had to do a little bit of work on. And let's see, the, the house, this house cost about um, a fifth of what I sold my place in Toronto for. So, and my profits were pretty good too off of the, the sale. So I picked up this place basically mortgage free. And that's, I mean, that's insane really. And the distance is kind of a, a rough factor because I don't get to see my friends and family too often. They have got to do this big drive to get out here. I can't even go visit overnight because I'm by myself. So I've got to take care of the poultry and, and the animals and stuff like that. So there's some challenges to going along with it. And the we're up north of north into the Canadian Shield land here. So there's a lot of rock and granite and stuff like that. So it's not the greatest land for growing. Um, a lot of the land around here is used for grazing, for beef and stuff like that. And I wanted to take control of my meat consumption when I moved out here. I was... I didn't want to eat factory meat anymore, so I was more interested in the livestock, even though I got into homesteading originally from growing food in my backyard in Toronto. And now I'm kind of going the other way, having done livestock for a year last year, and it's a lot. It's a lot emotionally, it's a lot physically, It's uh, and I'm not eating nearly as much meat, even though I'm growing more than enough to meet my needs. So now I'm kind of wishing I had better land for growing uh, pulses and like beans and chickpeas and and uh, more potatoes and more squashes and other plant-based calories. You know, it, it's funny you say that because I, I, I've found the same thing too that as like, you know, we started harvesting our ducks and eating those, um, you you enjoy it and you savor it when you have it, but you also feel a lot less compelled to like want to eat a ton of it and go crazy and have it, you know, three days of three or three meals a day, you know, six or seven days a week. Like you, you, yeah, I've noticed, yeah, you do get much more conservative with your consumption when, when that's the case, when you're actually providing it yourself. Yeah. You try and keep it for special occasions and it's, uh, like my freezer's full of chicken cause I raised 50 broilers last year. So I've got I've got enough meat to eat a, a bird every every couple of days and still probably be okay, but I rarely break one out unless I've got company or something. Now that's partially that's because I've got so many eggs coming in that I can't even keep up with them and I'm eating a ton of eggs. But I'm realizing that's not super sustainable either because I have to bring in so much feed for these birds. So I'm I'm really changing my tune on what I want to do. Because the, my number one goal out here was resiliency and, and self-sustainability and or self-sufficiency and sustainability for the changing climate and the changing socioeconomic conditions of the world. And if there is no industrial system providing corn and grain, then I realistically can't feed these birds myself. And so, whereas whereas you can chop open a squash, pull out, a hundred seeds from that squash, replant them. And then the next year you've got hundreds and hundreds of pounds of squash. So that's really kind of 
affected my view of how I want to do this. So, so, so what, what drives your concerns and sort of urge towards resiliency? Like, what, like, you, know, you mentioned climate change, but like, what, what are the factors that make you say, no, you know, I need to be prepared for sort of the, the bags of grain that I can get a tractor supplier or wherever, like for those to dry up and have a plan? Like, what, what, what's driving that for you? Well, it's an interesting journey because, like I said, I started growing food. I just like peppers and tomatoes and stuff in my backyard in Toronto. And I loved it so much that I started researching everything I could about horticulture, which led me to permaculture, which in turn through a, I think it was a Toby, Toby Hemingway talk about EROEI, which is energy return on energy invested, got me down like this deep rabbit hole of, um, like civilization collapse because of climate change and stuff like that. And it doesn't take much to find plenty of articles that'll tell you way more about that. So I'm not going to go too heavy on that right now. But this year is a good example of how the weather as a result of the change in climate is starting to interfere with food production. There's a, a, I believe there's a hashtag on Twitter, Cornwatch 2019 or Cornwatch 19 or something like that. And there's a whole bunch of corn farmers whose crops are either not planted because of the cold, wet spring that we're having in this part of the world, or it's a tenth of the size of the corn that was put in last year. And two years ago in Ontario, we had a lot of rain as well, and farmers were losing crops to to drowning, basically. The crops were drowning in the fields. And then last year, we had a drought. So it's these big extremes that are swinging back and forth that... You can't prepare for any one thing each year, and it's going to get worse because globally we're not doing anything really on the on a grand enough scale to stop this. So the jet stream is just going to keep meandering as the Arctic keeps melting, and you know I really do worry that we're going to see food shortages in the 2020s, and I want to be ready for that. Not so much for myself, but for my friends and family. Do you, and when you build your resiliency plans, do you factor in people like that, or is that, is that like that part of your your vision too, or is it is it like no, you've just you know got yourself set up there in, in Ontario? Ideally, I'd like to be growing enough food to feed everyone that I care about, and then in the short term, I'd be selling all of that at the farmers market in order to bring in some cash money, which has value right now, and I'd be able to use that to build up more infrastructure on the homestead, but. It's certainly a lot easier to just grow for one person, but what's the point of that, you know? There's no, I mean, you need a really strong sense of survival to just worry about yourself and no one else around you, because that's no way to live. No, that, that's totally understandable. So, so you know, in the interim, as you're starting to, to really kind of turn into a farmstead, uh, to pull language from, from a previous episode that we were uh, mm-hmm. recording... Um, as you're thinking about that, like, what are you, what's your, what's your plan? Like, how are you trying to make that work of, you know, whether it's market gardening or or something else? Well, (laughs) it's, uh, the plan, the plan is evolving. The plan, I thought I had a plan and the plan is evolving. This year I wanted to put in like a market garden style garden with rows and all that kind of like you you were talking about, I guess, Scott's episode and, yeah, learning a lot from Scott on YouTube and, and other market gardeners, trying to expand my production. But like I said, my land here is terrible for it. I'm trying to fence in my kitchen garden at the moment. And even just that, every time I try and dig a post hole, I hit a massive boulder and I have to dig it out. So I can't till, I can't 
do anything like that here because I'll just destroy blades if I tried to till with rocks in the ground. But at the same time, even though it's farm country, I can't seem to find truckloads of compost that I could just buy to to do a no-till system. And there's tons of farmers and big piles of manure everywhere that you'd think you'd be able to tap, but the farmers won't give it up because they use it to amend their own fields. So it's an interesting problem to have in the middle of, you know, farm country to not be able to get what I need to farm. Uh, and so I'm starting to wonder if, if I shouldn't look at other pieces of property and now that my goals are changed, which kind of sucks because I've invested so much into this place and I don't know if that's the right move or not, but I certainly, certainly the further south you go where the land gets better, the more expensive it gets. And like Scott said, homesteading is expensive and uh, I'm not like him. I'm not able to just throw myself into it like a business a hundred percent. For me, I it would probably be better to just earn income elsewhere and then invest it into a homestead. So I don't know. I don't know, Morgan. It's, uh, if you if you have the answer, you tell me. Uh, no, I mean I'm just I'm listening to you, and, and it's it's an interesting dilemma because, yeah, I mean it sounds like you need to build soil. Like I mean, just I do flat out, and I mean I guess I have always from everything I've read and looked at and learned about. It seems like you know the the simplest and fastest and easiest way to build soil is use animals to build that soil. Um, but then to your point of sort of the, the challenges that come with livestock and managing livestock and owning livestock, and particularly if you're just someone by yourself, um, it can be hard in and of itself. So it definitely sounds like a catch-22. Yeah, so that's a good, that's a good point, actually, because if I, were to, if I were okay with just bringing cattle on here, I'd have to invest in fences and stuff like that, although I could probably do electric, which wouldn't cost too much. But if I spent a few years raising cattle like like a business almost, buying cheap and then reselling them. Uh, and that would pay for the hay that's coming in for their bedding or for their feed and straw for their bedding. And then I get their manure as an output and use that to build soil so that I could stop raising cattle. That's an avenue. But then I have to deal with the emotional impact of raising meat animals that aren't even going to be for me. They They would be probably feeding back into the industrial meat system because I'd probably be selling them to feedlots unless I want to do all of the deal with all the butchery and direct to customer sales and all that stuff also but then I'm taking on an entire business by myself well but but that's that's such the dilemma on so many of these things right because like and, and I found myself getting into those same sort of quandaries where it's like all right I want to figure out a better way to you know, build these swales and berms and then, okay, well now I need this tractor and now I need this attachment and it will, to pay for the, having the tractor, I'm going to need to start to take on more production work, which means like, it means more hours. And like, you know, suddenly you go from just saying, well, I just want a nice permaculture orchard to, oh, I've got to be a row cropper in order to make all of this work. And like, that's not what I, I was looking to do, but yeah. so many things around the farm and homestead get driven that way, I find. Yeah. And so I'm trying to find that line so I can walk it because I don't want to do that really and I'm thinking well you know I don't really need to build that much soil to grow squash for example right if I can plug them in 
um, into the ground somewhere. They'll shade out the grass themselves pretty well. And I could grow a lot of food that way. Uh, I can, I can just buy, uh, spoiled hay and stuff like that. It'll cost me a little bit of money, but not as much as buying fresh hay would. And then I can use that to do a Ruth Stout system for potatoes, for example. And I've had success with both those things in the past, so I know that it could work. Um, but it's not, it's not easy. It does take a little trickery, I guess, sort of going around the usual way of doing things and finding the unusual ways that that can work for you. Well, and, and I think, you know, yes, that and, you know, it's looking at this when you, when you think about agriculture, right? And, and like throughout the course of human history, you know, every potential growing condition, you know, people have been able to more or less survive off of some sort of way to produce their food. Um, and well, like, how did they solve that then? You know, is it focusing on certain pro- crops that can work in a rocky soil or, you know, that really require limited topsoil? Or is it, you know, to your point, like build your own soil by chopping and dropping? Like, like there's ways to do it. It's just, yeah, it ain't easy. Yeah. It's a lot of work. No matter which way you do it, it's a lot of work. Either it's a lot of work because of an expenditure of fossil fuel energy that that uh, surpasses the need for human labor, or it's a lot of human labor, and usually it's a mix of both, so there's that too. I do think at some point I will try raising sheep here. I just I have so much grass to be eaten. Uh, I'm not so keen on cattle because by myself that's a lot of that's a lot of animal. That's a huge a bunch of huge animals. So I think maybe sheep. Dan Omen at the Grassfed Homestead was such a huge motivator for me getting into the homesteading life anyway. So I think trying sheep at some point is on the table. Uh, I don't think I'm going to like the slaughter, <laughs> but neither did Dan. And you just have to... If you're talking about survival, there's a lot you got to do that doesn't necessarily sound fun or pretty and you do it anyway so this isn't we're not there yet but it's worth practicing those skills for example i just got i just got a meat rabbit right i got my rabbit bonnebel who i probably shouldn't have named but i did and she's adorable and i love her and i got her to raise rabbits to kill and eat and i don't know if i can do that anymore because this little rabbit is so gosh darn cute so i just talked to the breeder today actually and I'm going to bring her in to get bread. And I'm going to raise those rabbits, and I'm going to turn them into food, because even if I don't want to do it, it's worth the discomfort to know that I can. And we talk about that a lot in terms of other parts of our lives, where it's not like, where it doesn't involve slaughter, but it's true of this as well, right? And I don't know how I'm going to feel about it on the other end of it, so I'll make a video about it, I'm sure. But in the short term, I have decided that I am going to do it even though I don't want to. And it's tough because my leanings are going more and more vegetarian and vegan, but my actions are speaking more and more like a like a carnivore. And I don't know. I don't know how to reconcile it. It's just, it is life. It's a tough place to be. I mean, I, I'm kind of in a very similar situation with you in terms of having the space and need for grazers, but not necessarily wanting to go all in with like sheep or cattle. And that's how I ended up doing like the, the batch of geese that I'm going to do this year and, and seeing how that experiment goes. But yeah, like 
when it gets to the end of the season, it's like I, I you know, I'm looking at them now. I'm like, wow, these guys are great. They follow me around. They listen to me. Ugh, am I gonna have to butcher all of them? And 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 yeah, it's a tough feeling. I mean, I know you went through that last year with uh, your goose there. Like that's it's not not easy when when you are taking care of these animals on a day in day out basis. But at the end of the day, yeah, they're they're intended to be your food, and that's that's what you got to do. Yeah, your geese actually are gonna. I think you'll have a similar experience to I had with the broilers because we both did laying flocks last year, and the laying flocks you have to call the extra drakes or roosters, right? Like it's kind of a necessity as part of raising laying animals in the in the industry in the industrial food production those baby boys are killed on day one and that's you know that's horrible that's brutal what we're doing it's hard to call it better because we we still had to kill those boys but we turned them into meat for ourselves and that i think is more ethical and we treated them well in that time but when you do meat animals when i did those broilers 50 corners cross that grew so fast because they ate so much food and then i even though I liked them a lot, I didn't really have any option but to slaughter them all because they've been bred for that. They've been raised for it. If I wanted them to live longer, healthier lives and not get eaten, then I should have held back more on the feed up to that point because, you know, Cornish Ross can live a long life if, they, uh, if they're well exercised and not overfed. But at that point, they were, they were fed to be turned into meat, right? So you're going to have that, yeah, when you get into the geese at the end of the year, it's like, how many of those are you going to allow yourself to keep if you love them? And how many are you just going to have to sh- grin and bear it because that was the job? Oh, no, no. My my rule is three. Three carry over for next year and guard duty with the ducks and that sort of thing. And then the rest, yeah, they got to go. Yeah. <laughs> I got nowhere to put them. I mean, you know, they, they, they're big. Yes. <laughs> Already. Yeah. Yeah. Wallop was a, a big animal. And uh, he was easier for me because he was a jerk. He, he he did not endear himself to me like I expected him to. But those, you know, surprisingly, the Cornish Cross were super friendly little little animals. And that was that was hard. So I'm not going to be doing broilers again, and only going to be culling birds out of my laying flock because now my rate of consumption for meat is so much lower that that actually looks more viable. But yeah, it's adjustments. You never know it. It, with homesteading, how you're going to feel year after year, and, and what is going to take. No, it's it's very true. So so living out there alone, I mean, you know, just kind of by your, you and your dog, basically. Does that get isolating? And and if so, how do you handle that? Oh yeah, it, it can be uh, it can be crippling almost. That's um especially in the winter. And uh, how do I handle that? Probably not well. I don't know. I I watch a lot of TV, which I'm not proud of, but it, or I guess I should say I watch a lot of YouTube on the TV. And at least that's somewhat educational. (laughs) At least I learn a thing or two from YouTube, but it's tough. I'm starting to find some community out here. I'm starting to find my people and I think I'll find more by virtue of being part of the farmer's market and, and integrating myself in the community this year. I'm starting to make friends, although... Uh, it, it's always the case with irony like that, that a few of them are moving away. So you make the friends and then they leave. But there's a, there's a coffee shop out here that was started by 
pair of sisters, one from Ottawa, one from Toronto. And that opened uh, four months after I moved here, which was perfect timing because I hang out there a lot chatting with them because they're also transplants to this area from from a city. So yeah, you got to find you got to find your ways of, of seeing people. But I get I get visitors. I mean, not as often as I'd like, but friends and family make it out here, especially in the summer, pretty regularly. It's really just a long six month winter that we have to deal with this far north as you do as well. Yeah, I, I know the feeling. Yeah, for sure. And it, yeah, it's, it's easy to get people to come and stay here in July. It's yeah, February. It's a rough, rough trade. Yeah. Yeah. I have someone coming every weekend this month. And just, it was like right after the snow melted, people start calling and they're like, yeah, I'll come up. And I was like, well, where were you for the last five months? Huh? That's when I needed a visitor. <laughs> come on. So I don't have any, I don't have any great insights on how to beat loneliness in the winter in in rural Canada or rural Vermont for that matter. The internet's great. Uh, my internet is pretty spotty, but it's enough to chat with people on various Discord servers or through YouTube or on Instagram. And uh, man, I don't know how people did it before the internet. You just, I guess, there were stronger community ties back then than there are now. Yeah, you know, when when I moved out here, th- that the internet was actually one of the big struggles. Was like, because like at, at the time, like all we could get was like this like really horrid like DSL. And like, you know, and I know that sounds like really ungrateful and I'm sure like in other situations, like, like that's, that's great. (laughs) But, you know, it's one of those things that when you move from a big city out to a rural area, you don't appreciate how far behind some of the the infrastructure is for, for internet connectivity and how much of a hindrance that can be, whether it's for, you know, working remotely or connecting with people or just watching Netflix, like it, it can be challenging. Like, talk about your experience with that. With internet? Well, (laughs) in rural Ontario, your only option really is a satellite internet provider called ExploreNet. And I think that's the rest of the provinces too, but I I can't only speak to Ontario. Uh, And anyone who has ExploreNet will tell you that it's terrible. Like, it's so expensive and it's so spotty and slow. I pay for pretty much the fastest upload and download I can get. So I pay a fortune through the teeth, but it's still like, if it rains, it can stop completely. Like I can just get no connection if it's raining hard enough. So I got my eye on that Starlink, that SpaceX Elon Musk project, because I don't know if you're following it at all yet, but the satellites that he's launching in low earth orbit to cover the world in high speed internet. So fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah, I think so. it all it takes is like one or two of his big gambles here to pay off and it makes humanity so much better. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> it really can. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it, it's, it's tough though. So as, as you're, you know, now what you've been out there two years now, it'll be two years at the end of this season. Cause I moved here right before winter <laughs> two years ago. So, so beyond the, the market gardening or, or trying to turn your hands at the farmer's market, um, wh- what are you hoping to accomplish this year? Well, it's uh it's funny because a lot of my concerns stem from next winter. So <laughs> I need a better winter chicken house or duck house or, or both. Probably. Uh, I'd probably am going to downsize my laying flocks because I have more eggs coming in than I'm using. So unless I'm able to develop a market and sell them out here, then it makes more sense to shrink the flock. So I'm looking at building a fixed static 
winter coop at some point this year and put that right next to where my frost-free hydrant is so I can not need to carry buckets as far as I did this past winter. And then uh, I've got the kitchen garden, which I'm trying to fence in and pretty up so that I can next year, as soon as the snow's cleared, I can plant right into it. Whereas this year I, I went into fall not ready. So it's a lot of stuff uh, preparing for the next winter, preparing for the next growing season. There's a few projects that are like, at this rate, I probably aren't even going to happen, but would have been for this year. Like I wanted to do an outdoor kitchen, so I'm not sure if I'll get to that this year in the end. Um, but yeah, it's stuff to make next winter more enjoyable. Like you said, if you're prepared for it and if your mindset is right, it can be nice. So if I can put up enough firewood that I can just enjoy a roaring fire all winter, then it won't be as bad. Whereas this year I had to go out and find deadwood and drop it in the snow and split it out there and then bring it in. And then I'd run out of fire firewood a week later and I'd have to do it all over again. So that was, that was horrible. So yeah, I don't, this year's goals are all kind of for next year. They're all about preparing for the future again, which I guess is kind of par for the course with me in this homestead. You know, I, I really enjoy talking with Jason. He he's a guy who brings such a different perspective and, and one of the, the kind of core beliefs I have for, for the world and how I lead my life is to to really take in all of those different perspectives and appreciate all of the people out there who see the world differently than I do or maybe from just a slightly different angle, which I would probably say is Jason's case. Um, I find that those conversations are the most stimulating. I find that those are the ones that test my own beliefs and really get me thinking differently too. I hope you guys enjoyed that conversation and it did a little bit of the same for you. Um, I'd be very curious to hear about it. So feel free to pass me a note if you, if you have any thoughts um, accordingly. Well, that is it. That's all we've got for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you want to learn more about Jason and what he's doing up at his homestead, be sure to check him out on YouTube and Instagram. Uh, it's Start From Seed. I'll leave a link down in the show notes. Um, but, yeah, he's doing some really interesting stuff, and, and a lot of that great perspective that you heard in our conversation comes through in a lot of what you're seeing in his YouTube videos. And speaking of YouTube videos, be sure to check out our YouTube videos on the Goldshaw Farm YouTube channel. Uh, we put out two videos a week. Uh, lately, the videos have been all about the goslings, but we also have a, a couple of other new additions to the farm that are that are coming, and, and so it's kind of an exciting time. You know, after being sort of stuck under snow for so long, we're we're now living through mountains and mountains of grass, but it's 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 kind of a fun time. So be sure to check those out, Goldshaw Farm on YouTube. And that's really all I've got. Um, if you guys have any questions, be sure to shoot me an email at goldshawfarm at gmail.com. Or if you love this show and you want to tell people about it, be sure to write a review. You know, the more fresh reviews we have, the more it helps the show grow. And I will be back very soon with another conversation about homesteading, farming, or people just doing some wacky stuff and chasing their dreams. So with that, 
we will ask my good friend, Mr. Keith Pierce, to play our theme song. It's got a soul, this hero farm, it falls asleep inside my arms. We work the fields under the stars, the love is here at Goldshaw Farms. A city life yet had its charms, but we would dream of the fields under the stars. I fall asleep inside its arms. The love is here at Goldshaw Farms. The love is here at Goldshaw Farms. 